We're in a four-week series um, in the urban churches of Acts. We're looking at and pointing to some distinctions of these churches, um, some of the issues that they had and how they embodied the gospel in their context within their churches. Well, we've been to Greece already. Um, Pastor Michael, I think the first week, introduced us to Philippi, if you want to bring the map up. Um, Pastor Michael introduced us uh, to the city of Philippi, and Pastor David last week uh, took us to Corinth. And so we've been in the, in, in the country, or what is now uh, modern-day Greece, but today we're going to uh, take a tour, and we're going to travel. I like traveling. So we're going to go to Turkey, and we're going to go to the city of Ephesus. And today, we're going to talk together about the city in general. What is the city? To take a tour of the city of Ephesus and then to explore Paul's letter and message to this church that's in Ephesus. Um, if you've been around for Mission Sunday ever uh, in the last couple of years, and you'll know that um, my full-time job is, is the director of the Chicago Urban Program, which means that my job is to agitate, I mean teach students um, about God's call to the city and, and what cities are like and some of the issues in an urban context. And my job is also to partner with churches who've been faithfully um, ministering in an urban context for 30 to 40 years and looking at some of the things that they're doing in embodying the gospel in their community. And so my, my full-time job is actually uh, to study the city. I'm a student of the city, and that's what I do. Um, and I... Um, you know, that means I do lots of weird things. Like I subscribe to everyblock.com on every block that I know my students are at to see what's going on in their neighborhood. That means that I really enjoy watching 12 hours of um, Chicago, city of a century, and all the things that Chicago has been through and what it offers. And um, I sit around and I watch these documentaries actually about every year because I'm a student of our city. I need to know what's happening in the city of Chicago and know what it looks like to study the city. Um, I'm fascinated by cities. I love traveling. So I know when I go to Cairo, for instance, if I go to Cairo, Egypt, that I have to dress differently than I do here. Some of y'all would look naked in Cairo, okay? So I remember one time I went to a museum in Cairo, and there was, I think Pam was with me that year, there was a woman that was wearing like real short shorts and kind of a tank top, you know, spaghetti strap thing. And when I saw her in the context of Cairo, I almost passed out. I was like, has anybody told this woman that she's naked? She's naked here. And so I know that about the city of Cairo. I know um, that uh, in the city of Beijing, every time I go to buy a popsicle that I think is chocolate, indeed it is red bean. So, um, so I know that when I travel to, um, to China, finding chocolate is not exactly going to be, you know, one of my uh, goals for, for the, for the um, time. The mango popsicles and the melon popsicles are good, but but the things that look like chocolate, red bean. So um, surprises when you travel and when you visit cities. So I want to talk first about why the city is, is an important place to embody the gospel. Why cities? Why, why, um, why that location? Number one, I want to propose that the city is strategic for gospel expansion. That the city is strategic for gospel expansion because cities are centers, right? Cities are centers where lots of people gather to do things like work. Think about your commutes, people. When you're commuting back and forth out of the city of Chicago, you're like, where did all these people come from? Why are they all on the road at the same time? So we see that these cities are places where people come and work from all over. Um, Think about even your own jobs or the schools that you're at. There are people from all over the world 
from all over the world that gather in your workplaces, speaking different languages, looking different than you. And so a city is a center of commerce. A city is also a center of intellect and ideas where there are major universities and where thoughts about how the world ought to be and how we get there are formed, right? So we have, cities are major centers of intellect. Um, cities are also centers where the poor and the marginalized and those without work from the outskirts come into. And so The city is a strategic place for gospel expansion because people come to cities as a center of commerce, intellect, and and, uh, for the poor as well. Um, And then people come into major cities and they move to other majors. How many of you ever moved to and from Chicago ever? How many of you moved to Chicago? Okay, how many moved from Chicago someplace else visiting? And now you're back, right? So people come back and forth and back and forth. And so the the movement that is in cities offers and allows for the gospel to go forth. When you think about a community like La Villita on the southwest side of Chicago and the amount of um, back and forth that there is, when you think about a a neighborhood like Humboldt Park, the amount of times that people uh, come back and forth from Puerto Rico learning about God, passing that on, bringing back thoughts about God from Puerto Rico and, and... the movement of peoples. It's a huge opportunity for the gospel to go out from cities. Um, A World Impact study in in early 2002 said that 80% of America's unchurched people live in our 100 largest cities. 80% of the people that are unchurched in our country live in 100 of our largest cities. So if you want to go, if you want to know where people who are have questions about God or who are hostile to God, who are seeking God, where they are, 80% of them are in cities. So a city is a strategic place for gospel expansion. Number two, I want to propose that um, cities are growing. So the growth of the city beckons our investment. There is a critical mass of people in the city. There are now 430 cities worldwide that have populations over 1 million. 430 cities worldwide that have more than 1 million people living in them. Most of them not in our country. And there's continued growth. So catch this, it freaks me out every time. Every year, a city the size of Seattle moves into Mexico City. Every year, a city the size of Seattle moves into Mexico City. So what now is 9 million people city and 20 million people metro, there are 600,000 plus people moving into Mexico City every year looking for work looking for establishment in their lives, looking for something. So the city is a strategic place because it is growing. And that growth, sorry, and that growth beckons our investment. Um, I, I know all of you guys who are, I know a lot of you personally, so I know all of you guys were thinking, oh, that's why I moved to Chicago. I moved here, number one, because the city is a strategic place for gospel advancement, and number two, because the cities are growing. That's like right after, right before number three, because it's close to my work, right? So I know that we all decided that way, but I'm telling you that that's why we're here now. So for whatever reason we moved here, that's why we're here. Um, so how do we study and understand a city? This is like a whole session, but I'm going to give it in three points. We understand a city through its infrastructures. So through all things that are structural, through the transportation system, through housing and schools, law enforcement, parks and uh, recreation. So the first thing that I do when I go to a city, those of you who know me, I travel, I go to the city and I buy a map. And I look at the map and see, like, what kind of train system does it have? Where does it go and why? Where are the universities and why? Where do people live and where's the commerce and why? Where are the museums? And I begin to kind of study the map on the plane on the way there. And then when I get there, the first thing I do is to take a ride on public transportation. 
as scary as that may sound in some cities. I don't take cabs because if I want to understand the city, I want to know its infrastructures and how it works. So I jump on a train or I jump on a bus and I just see kind of hopefully it will take me to where I want to go. Um, So we learn about cities from its infrastructures. We also learn about cities uh, from its behaviors. So the things that that city is known for. What is it known to do or to behave like or to contain within that city? So I'm going to play a game with you guys. This is an exercise of association. So I'm going to name off a couple of cities. And you're going to turn to the person next to you and say the first thing that comes to mind when I name that city. Okay, so find a friend. And when I name the city, you tell me the first thing that comes to mind. Or you tell your partner the first thing that comes to mind. Ready? Okay. New York City. Okay, Los Angeles, Los Angeles. All right, uh, Paris, Paris, France. All right, and your last city is Shanghai. Okay, so when we think of cities, we have things that we associate with these cities, yes? I say New York and you say... Shopping, Wall Street, partying. When I say Los Angeles, you say? Uh, Lakers, Hollywood, image, okay? When I say Paris, you say? Love. Yeah, that was pretty easy. Everyone says love, okay? So, um, so it's, it's, a, it's an understanding we have of cities. So, uh, with this in mind, with this in mind, I would like to take you on a tour of the city of Ephesus. And what we understand about the city of Ephesus and the church within that city. So um, we're going to have some slides come up in a moment. But Ephesus, um, I'm going to tell you why it's important. Uh, A lot of times when you read the scriptures, it's kind of like Paul is speaking out there to some people somewhere, you know. Or Jesus is walking around and we imagine him kind of in the desert with sandals and this robe on like aimlessly. But actually a lot of the New Testament takes place in major cities. And so we don't have the imagination sometimes to see where they would be placed. And therefore, sometimes the scriptures fall flat on our understanding because we don't have that context. So we're going to look at, can we get the map up? We're going to look at the city, oh no, that one, uh, the city of Ephesus, which is in modern day Turkey. Um, Its location, ancient Ephesus was situated at the mouth of a river on the western coast of Turkey. So you can see it's right there on the coast and it's at the mouth of a river. So it's where basically the sea and the river come together. Um, And it's south of what is now Izmir. I think you can see it right above it on the map. It's south of what is now modern day Izmir. But it was a city actually since um, 1800 years before Christ. So it's a very old city. And due to its strategic location, it had been taken over and occupied by many people. Because there it was on the coast with the river coming into. So it was strategic for lots of commerce and things. So it was occupied by the Persians. It was occupied by the Greeks. And finally, 30 years before Christ, it came into Roman occupation. And so this was a place that was strategic and kind of coveted by many. Um, so impressive 
was the city of Ephesus, that Emperor Augustus made it the capital of the whole province of Asia. So it became the, the, the capital of, of the surrounding place because it was such an impressive um, place. And Ephesus enjoyed significant prosperity due to its strategic location and commerce. Um, so they called Ephesus the supreme metropolis of Asia. That's what, what its title was, the supreme metropolis of Asia. Because Ephesus had so much to offer. There was so much that could be done in the city of Ephesus. So I want you to turn to your neighbor and tell them, what's, what does this city remind you of, a modern-day city? What cities, what cities could it remind you of? Okay, we're still guessing. Okay, I got more information then for you. We'll keep going. So the location of Ephesus was strategic. We also know that its importance during the New Testament times um, was 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 really high. It was one of the most important cities within the region, within the um, Mediterranean world. Because, number one, because of its size. So some scholars estimate that there were about 240, 250,000 people li- living in the city of Ephesus. It's, it was the third largest city in the Mediterranean world. It was the third largest city in the Mediterranean world in its region. And its importance was just behind Rome and Alexandria. So we have the, the Roman Empire, which clearly its center was Rome. And then we have the city of Alexandria with its great library and wonderful thinkers and all the things that happened there as a port city. And then we have, thirdly, um, in importance and in size, the city of Ephesus. There were prominent families there. I mean, Oprah was there, Obama was there. You know, pe- p- important people went there. And there were prestigious universities. There, okay, we can keep going, sorry. Uh, keep going. Okay, um, anyway, there are prestigious universities there. I'll talk about this in a minute. There are prestigious universities there. So people um, came to study. Any of you come to study to Chicago? Maybe some of you stayed here, but you came originally to study. That's why you're here. So we had important families and prestigious universities and leading class medical schools. Um, So we have here a picture of the stadium, uh, which was in Ephesus. And this is where people had an opportunity to... um, to watch people fight, basically, the gladiators. So it was a place of entertainment and culture, very refined culture, Ephesus was. Keep going. The next thing we have is the, the theater at Ephesus, which actually held 24,000 people. So a tenth of the city could fit in this theater. So people came to Ephesus to watch um, plays, to hear music, um, to be cultured in the city of Ephesus. Keep going. And then we have, of course, their library, the, the library in Ephesus, which points to its... Um, advancements of intellect in academia. So we have in Ephesus, actually one of the most prestigious medical schools in all of the region was there, sounding like any place you know of. Um, Ephesus was a leading port city because of its harbors and roads. So not only did boats come in through the rivers and the, the sea channel, but it also had all the, uh, the royal roads that came through Ephesus. So anything that was going to be exported from Asia would leave from Ephesus. And anything that was going to be imported from the east, from the far east, from India, or imported from the west, Spain, Spain, um, Italy, and uh, Greece, or Spain and Italy would come in from the west through these roads and through these harbors. So it was a place where there was lots of trading, lots of traffic, lots of things happening, lots 
of people. So um, our city, Chicago, actually, um, because I have watched those documentaries, I know that um, was very influential because of its ability to, um, to, because of Lake Michigan, right, to bring in goods, to send out goods, and then they made the canal that connected to the river so they can send more goods. So it became, the city of Chicago actually grew because of its location at the lake and the river, Um, and the canal that they built. And then it came, there were railroads, right? And all the railroads kind of left from Chicago and came to Chicago. And so we began a huge industry in meatpacking. And at one point, Chicago was known as the hog butcher of the world because we were able to pack all this meat into these railroad carts, ice them, and then send them out to the whole country. So everyone got their pork from us, Chicago. Now, we know, if you want to go to the next slide, we know that Chicago um, continues to be, sorry, keep going, continues to be a hub, right? Chicago continues to be a hub now for major airlines. So people are coming in and out of Chicago, in and out of Chicago, sometimes to visit us and sometimes to get connected to go somewhere else, right? So that's actually American Airlines. So, um, uh, so this city was an important, prestigious city with crossroads, and that gave the city incredible diversity. This city was an incredibly diverse city with people from all over the world who maybe came to do one thing and stayed, and then went home and then came back again. So that gives you a sense of it. Does it remind you of any city you know? Okay. All right. Just checking in with you. Um, the, the ideology in Ephesus, so now we know its size, its importance, kind of what the infrastructures of Ephesus are. The ideology of Ephesus was really, really interesting because the city was found near an old center of worship. And this old center of worship actually worshiped the nature goddess um, of, of the people of, of Ephesus. And later on was equated with the, the Greek goddess Arme, uh, Artemis. And um, in 550 years before Christ, a large temple was built. So this is actually like a computerized version of what that temple might look like in that time. Um, but this temple was built, and actually the cult of Artemis was the dominant form of worship for all Ephesians. Like all of their kind of daily stuff was wrapped around the worship of this god Artemis, this goddess Artemis, and in this temple. And this temple, just so you guys know for size, is four times the size of the Parthenon in Athens. Four times the size of the Parthenon in Athens. So it's a very large major temple. You can go to the next slide. Now it looks like this. Um, and, uh, which is actually not bad because it's, you know, thousands of years old. So that looks pretty good for thousands of years. Um, but because of this, um, there were, was temple worship. And the, the picture of the goddess Artemis, there you have her. So that's a picture of the goddess Artemis. But what's interesting about this city is that as people occupied the city, they just added gods to what was going on. So there was the temple and worship of Artemis, and then came the Greeks. And they brought all of their Greek gods, Apollos and Aphrodite and Dionysus. And the list actually was a half a page on, in, the, in the book, so I didn't write them all down. But they began to... Um, resurrect and raise up statues of all the Greek gods. And after they were done with that, then they began to resurrect and um, make statues of the Egyptian gods, and those people came through. And so you had the Egyptian god and the Egyptian goddess, and after that came the Romans, and they occupied. And so what they did with the Romans was they um, made statues, actually, of the family, of, of the members of the Roman family. So there was a statue of Augustus and a statue of Tiberius and a statue of Claudius. And so they continued to add and add and add and add and add more gods to their temple. There was a lot of worship in this city. In this third largest city, 
It was diverse, it was influential, and it was full of idols, much like our city. And then in the midst of the city was the church of Ephesus. Imagine yourselves. Imagine being a church in a city like this. Can you imagine? Third largest city, influential, powerful, full of idols. Imagine yourself in a church, a part of the church of a city like this. Um, Much of what we know about the church in Ephesus, we actually know from the last couple chapters of Acts. Um, And I'm just going to read a couple of things. I'm not going to steal the thunder of the person that does these chapters. So I'll just read a couple of things to set the context of what this church was like. First of all, this church was um, led by Paul. And so um, Acts 18, uh, verses 18 through 22 says this. um, Gives us a little bit of the story. It says, Paul stayed in Corinth for some time. And then he left the brothers and sailed for Syria, accompanied by Priscilla and Aquila. And before he sailed, he he had his hair cut off at um, Centria because of a vow he had taken. And they arrived at Ephesus, where Paul left Priscilla and Aquila. He himself went into the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. When they asked to spend more time with them, he declined. But as he left, he promised, I will come back if it is God's will. And he set sail from Ephesus. When he landed at at Caesarea, he went up and greeted the church and then went down to Antioch. So that gives you a sense that Paul had been there, he had visited, he had left some people in charge. And then in uh, Acts chapter 19, we get more of the story. Paul entered the synagogue. He came back to Ephesus. He entered the synagogue and spoke boldly there for three months, arguing persuasively about the kingdom of God. But some of them became obstinate. They refused to believe and publicly maligned the way. This is what they were called at the time, the way. So Paul left them. He took the disciples with him and had discussions daily in the lecture hall of Tyrannus. This went on for two years, so all the Jews and Greeks who lived in the province of Asia heard the word of the Lord. So Acts chapter 18 and 19 gives us a sense that Paul came to visit, but after that he returned to Ephesus for three years, um, and he taught, and he spoke boldly, and he proclaimed boldly the word of the Lord. And he wasn't always received well, and he wasn't always accepted, and so he just kind of moved on and found another place where he could preach and proclaim. Uh, The second thing we learned about the church of Ephesus is that um, it was not only led by Paul, but it was really successful and very diverse. And uh, church history actually confirms that it's likely that Ephesus was the place where mission activity went out from. So as the churches in Asia Minor were planted, they were likely planted from Ephesus. So it would be like we have a church in Chicago and all of a sudden Waukegan and South Holland and Naperville. They began to plant churches from the city of Ephesus. And the church was spreading. Well, as the church was spreading... um, because it was incredibly diverse ethnically and because there were people that were like from everywhere. Uh, You know, there were Jews that kind of had like a similar understanding of God, like, oh yeah, I understand. And there's a foundation between the Old Testament God clearly and the New Testament story of Jesus. But then there were people that came from all these Greek and Roman pagan worship experiences. And they were not only worshiping Artemis, but they were worshiping the Roman emperors and they were worshiping, they were doing magic and sorcery and people's conversion experiences weren't all like, I grew up in a church and then I went to church and I went to this Bible camp and then, you know, I heard about Jesus and I responded to him. It wasn't like that. These were people that were picked up out of oppression, spiritual oppression and lives that did not, they were far from God 
in the clearest visible sense of the word. And they had all weird thoughts about who this Jesus was and who God was. There were people who were wealthy and just doing all sorts of things with their finances. And there were people who were so poor, they didn't know how to put food on their table the next day. There were people that came from Jewish backgrounds, Greek backgrounds, other Gentile backgrounds. And now they're all together sitting here. And in these small homes around the city, having church together. Can you imagine that? They had some problems. They had a lot of hostility within their church and things to work out because they came from such different backgrounds. This was the church at Ephesus. We'll come back to that. The third thing, so Paul was in charge. They were successful and diverse. The third thing I think we need to know about this church in Ephesus, which I think is different than the church of Corinth, is that their success and their witness was a threat to the people in the city. People were threatened by them. If you continue to read the book of Acts. In Acts 19, and I really so wanted to preach this one. I'm not going to, I'm going to skip over. But in Acts 19, there's this awesome story. Go home and read it. And the people are like, the merchants are frightened. They're like, oh, can, how do we shut this guy up? Because my business is down. I don't know what to do. Like, none, look, none of us are selling anything here. We got to find a way to shut these people up. Because we are going to go down if they don't stop talking and preaching and living a way that shows people about this Jesus, about this way, and we're going to lose all of our livelihood. And so a riot broke out in the city, right? And the passage says that the people filled the theater. Remember the picture of the theater? 24,000 people sit, they all gathered in the theater. 24,000 people fit in that theater. I don't know if it was full or not, but I can imagine. 10% of the city was in an uproar because of the gospel message being proclaimed and embodied. There are three million people in the city of Chicago proper. Imagine to yourself that 300,000 people fill Millennium Park screaming and chanting and feeling threatened and scurred by us because we are living out the gospel and proclaiming the gospel and living in such a way that they feel threatened. This church was successful, and this church was a threat to the worship of the people in the city of Ephesus. Does that give you a picture of what the city is like? Does that give you a picture of what this church is like? I hope it gives you a glimpse of it because we're going to move on now to what the passages say, to what the message that Paul uh, proclaimed to this church was. Um, There were many uh, messages given to the church of Ephesus First and Second Timothy, which I won't get to, the book of Revelations addresses it, but I'm going to land in the book of Ephesians and talk about two major themes that Paul tries to communicate to the people at Ephesus. The first thing that Paul says to the people at Ephesus is that you need to embrace the gospel message. You need to embrace the gospel message that we are called to be united as one people. Embrace the gospel message that says that we together are one family. And so he writes in Ephesians chapter 2. Therefore, remember that formerly you who are Gentiles by birth are called uncircumcised and are called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision. That, that's done in the body by the hands of men. Remember that at that time you were separate from Christ excluded from citizenship in Israel and foreigners 
to the covenants of the promise, without hope, without God in the world. But now in Jesus Christ, you who were once far away have been brought near through the blood of Jesus, through the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made the two one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by abolishing in his flesh the law with all of its commandments and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new man out of two, thus making peace. And in this one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross, by which he put to death their hostility. And he came and preached peace to those who were far away and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access to the Father by the Spirit. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and aliens, but fellow citizens with God's people and members of God's household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him... The whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you two are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. Can you imagine being that Christian church within a context, within this large, diverse, massive, influential city full of temple worship that God would say to them, you are now being built together as the temple you are now being built together as one family. Paul says to them, Christ brought peace and unity. I think they needed to know that. I think Paul needed to remind them that Christ had taken the two men, the different kinds of people, and made them one humanity. And he's speaking about barriers that existed for thousands and thousands of years. He's talking to things um, that were in their makeup that that they needed to be set free from. And into that level of diversity, that had to be stretching for everybody in the room. That had to be stretching for everybody present in those churches, meeting throughout the city, that they had become one. That Christ himself was their peace. That they were members of one household. Must have been offensive for some people to be members of one household with people who were so nasty just a few months ago. The embodiment of the unity of the church is central to its identity and its witness because it points to the cross. The identity of the body of the church is central to its witness because it points to the cross. It says to us, it's not about overcoming human differences and hostility. It's about living in a spiritual reality that people can't and won't understand. It's about embracing the gospel message and allowing it to make us into something that people are completely confused by. And it points to the power of the cross. It reveals how Christ's work on the cross has broken the wall of hostility. And it has implications for how we ought to live. So in chapter 4 and chapter 5 and chapter 6, Paul lays out for them, how then would this look? How then would this look? To bear one another is something we work at. I wish I had time to preach the other five chapters, but I don't. So, um, Because although we're positionally in Jesus, we're practically still working it out, yes? You and I are brother and sister. I don't know you, but we're brother and sister, and so we're still working this out, right? How it works, how it looks. It's never easy. 
but it sure is easier with people who are like you. It's never easy, but it sure is easier with people who are like you. College students, it's never easy. I work with, not 10 years I've worked with college students. We don't have real community. We don't have true community. We need to be a community. Yeah, yeah, you're all giggling because that's true. That's what you say. It is easier for you to have community than it is in college, in a dorm, when you're all going through the same things, than it is for you to uproot yourself out of that and be with a community of people who are completely different than you, with different stages of life. Even in our churches, we specialize in ministry, like the youth, the post-college, the singles in their 20s, the singles in their 30s, the people with children, you know, you kind of section it off, right? Even in our church, people... Even in our church where the age is like, you know, right there. We still look around like, which community group has all the single people so I can like hang out and have fun with them? I talk to you so I know what you say. Which community has all the married people so they will understand what I'm going through? Which community group has married people with children so they can understand what I'm going through? And we seek to find people who are exactly like you. And I'm here to say, that's not good. That is not good. Because single parents need to be in small group with college students so that college students can see what it's like to labor and work when you do not have some things that they have. And married couples need to be in small group with single people who are older so that when they love their friends, they know what they're going through. And they understand the pain of what it feels like to be 31 and single. We need people who are different than us. We need to be in settings where we can bear one another's burden and keep the unity, not just cross-culturally, but cross-economically. Because in this church in Ephesus, there were intellectual academics and ex-prostitutes. And in this church in Ephesus, there were businessmen and the day laborers that they exploited in this church together. So do you think Paul might have had to help them out a little bit? This is the kind of diversity that was in the church. This is the kind of diversity that Paul still said, when people look at you and they see that you are one body, they will know the gospel message. So this goes to point number two. Paul said to them, not only do you need to embrace the message of the gospel, but you need to embody the message of the gospel. This is my favorite part. This is why I do what I do. You need to embody the gospel message because the scriptures say that God has chosen the church to reveal his glory. Listen up. Beautiful, beautiful verse in Ephesians chapter 3. The mystery is that through the gospel... The Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, members together of one body, and shares together in the promise of Jesus Christ. I became a servant of this gospel by the gift of God's grace given to me through the working of his power. Although I am less than all the least of all God's people, this grace was given to me to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to make plain to everyone the administration of this mystery for which the ages past was kept hidden in Christ, who created all things. His intent was that now, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms. His intent was that now, 
through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms. The manifold wisdom of God revealed to the powers around them. So think about this church in Ephesus, this huge, influential, diverse city full of worship. Someone had to reveal God's glory there. Someone had to reveal God's glory there to say through their unity and their lifestyle, to say through the way that, the way that they live, we see those temples and we see all those statues, but we want you to know that God is here. We see you Romans. We see you patrolling through the streets. We see your power. We see your wealth. We see your might, but we want you to know that God is here. Somebody, someone had to reveal God's glory. And the scriptures tell the Ephesian church that the manifold wisdom of God was supposed to be revealed through them. The letter's emphasis on the church is unmistakable. The very powers of the heavenlies, the very powers of the heavenly realms were to know who God is because of the way the church lived. And here Paul emphasizes the importance of the existence of the church as a way of God working out his great purpose. God's working out his great purpose through the church. So God's glory is not merely revealed through you as an individual Christian. God's glory is not merely revealed through you as an individual Christian. If that was the case, Acts would have been like a whole story of like every little person's life and what they did and how they made it. It would read like our journals, right? But it doesn't. It's a story about a people. It's a story about a movement. And if I were to rewrite one of the songs we just sing, we just sing, it would sound different a little bit. I'll sing it at the end for you. I rewrote it during worship. But it is a story about the people of God moving. And I know, because I work with, well for lots of reasons in my own life, um, that we really struggle with that as Christians. That some of us were like, oh God, when someone comes up to us and says, oh, um, let me pick on Teresa because I know her. Oh, um, oh, you're a Christian? Oh, oh, I can't believe that you belong to the church. You're not like one of those Christians. That we're like, oh, thank God. Oh, thank God I'm not like one of those Christians. You know, oh, I'm, I'm just, I hear you and I see how you're living and I see how you're talking. Wow, you just live so boldly and the things that you do, I can't even imagine the truth. Leah, I didn't know that you were a Christian. Like, and, and Leah says, oh, praise the Lord. They didn't think I was belonging to the church, you know. That's ridiculous. And it hurts our witness. You know why? God does not want to reveal his glory through your soul little self. God wants to reveal his glory through the people of God. That was always his intent through Israel. That is his intent through the church. It's like someone coming to me and saying, oh, Sandra, um, I don't really see you as Latino. I used to think that was a compliment. Now I'm like, what do you mean? Like I belong to a family and a people and a struggle and a history. You don't see me like that? Or it's like the girls sometimes on campus would say to the guys, oh, you're not really a guy. You're just like one of the girls. What? 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 And I would tell the girls, don't say that to the men. Does that respect the men? Does that honor them for who they are as men? No, it doesn't. That is not a compliment to a man. You're just one of the girls. In the same way, church, in the same way, Christians, it is not a compliment when someone says to you, oh, I didn't know you belonged to the church. 
And we say, oh, thank the Lord. That's not a compliment. Because our very identity as believers of God is that God brought us into a family. God did not call us to cross the bridge and follow him by ourselves. God called us into a family that was waiting on the other side. And the minute that we begin to see our job as individual Christians merely being our job to reflect God's glory, we miss what Paul is saying in this passage. And the church, in their revealing God's glory, made an impact in the world around them. In Acts 19, when the city was in an uproar because the church was living in a way that said, we see your power. We see your influence. But we want you to know by our presence that God is here. And so if I was going to rewrite the song that we sang earlier, I would rewrite it like this. In our lives, be lifted high. In our love, be lifted high. In our world, be lifted high. So I would rewrite the order because the reality is that it is in our collective lives that God is lifted high. And it is in our love that God is lifted high. And it's through that love and through that witness that God is lifted high in the world. Without the two coming before it, God will not be lifted high in the world because he's telling us, church, it is your job to reveal my glory. Uh, So what is the message for the church in Chicago? I have some slides. Uh, What is the message for the church in Chicago? Let's take a look at Chicago um, and take a look at our city. Uh, Here we have um, our stadiums. We have our stadiums and our entertainment and our values. Keep going. Uh, Here we have Water Tower, right? Tell us about our history, about the Great Fire, and about the wonderful shopping that's around that Water Tower. Tells you about our values. Here we have our governmental center, right? And so uh, along with our governmental center, next slide, we have our mayor. And so that tells us something about the city of Chicago. Now, um, earlier we played an exercise, and I gave you cities, and you told me back what we thought. So when I say Chicago... You say, okay, one at a time. When I say Chicago, you say diversity, diversity. home, energy, theater, bears. Okay, you guys need to know your city. All right. Um, So when I say Chicago, things should come to mind. So what powers, when you think about the city of Chicago, what powers in the heavenlies, what powers that are in place need to see that God is here? What powers need to see that God is here? What about the powers and the structure of segregation and racism in our city? What about the powers that surround that? When you think about those powers, are we living in a way, church, that embodies the reality that across all differences, in a spiritual reality, we are one? Are we embodying that unity across our diversity? And are we preserving that unity in our neighborhoods and in our churches and between churches, hey, in the city of Chicago? Are we preserving that unity? Because the gospel call is not so much that we are making the kingdom happen and advancing the kingdom and forcing the kingdom into being, but that we are striving to configure ourselves as an alternate community that reflects the kingdom around us. 
anticipating the already but not yet part of the kingdom. That we are configuring ourselves to be that community. And the main reason, I mean, I want you guys to know, I'm like the, every time I listen to my podcast, I'm like, I'm always talking about race and diversity and justice. What's the issue? Um, But you want to know what the issue is for me? The main reason that I'm committed to reconciliation and justice across diversity, racially and socioeconomically, because I think in our country with our history, come on, somebody is waiting for the church to stand up. Somebody is waiting that God would be high and lifted up through the church and our ability to love one another and bear each other's burdens across our differences. I'm not committed to reconciliation for the sake of reconciliation so I have a beautiful different group of people around me and I can pat myself on the back and love all these cultures. It is the testimony and the witness of the church at stake for me. So I run the urban program and I preach on those things because for me it's about evangelism. It's about the witness and the power and the testimony of the church that when we show up, people say, I see It shows God's power. Even when you think about justice work and compassion work, it's one thing to help the poor. It's another thing to help and advocate for the poor. It's a completely different thing to be in relationship with and belong to those who are hurting and marginalized and invisible in our city. There are many people helping the poor. There are many people advocating for the poor. There aren't a whole lot of people befriending and including and belonging to those who are hurting in our city. That shows not God's love and justice. That shows God's power. That shows God's power to break down walls of hostility. That shows God's power to make those who are alienated and separate now one. Are we going to be a church that doesn't merely show God's compassion and God's justice, but God's power. What about, what other powers need to see that God is here in our city? What other powers need to see that God is here in our city? What about the powers of corruption and violence? What about the evil that happens in our city every day? as it surrounds and has to deal with corruption and violence and crime. Do those powers need to see that God is here? And how can our presence make an impact in our city so that God's glory is revealed through us? So that when we move into the city, the drug dealers and the prostitutes are like scared that their profits will go down. That when we purchase a building or place ourselves to congregate and worship in a part of the city that the liquor stores and the bars and Gigi's peep show would think, oh my God, how could they move in? People should be traumatized by our presence. Evil powers should be traumatized by our presence because they know that pretty soon, pretty soon, people are going to notice that God is here. We just finished a um, seven-week-long urban program for the students. The five-weekers left a couple weeks ago. Yesterday, we finished the seven-week. And Carl drove the last one to the airport, and we felt great. And so the interesting thing about their experience was that after all the teaching and training on ethnicity and justice and Amos and all those things that we did, the beauty of what they saw was on their last day. 
This was a really, really rough summer when it relates, or as it relates to crime. Yes? Have you guys been paying attention to the news or are maybe even affected by what's going on? Um, and, and the CUP students, the Chicago Urban Project students, were sitting on their st- stoop, like they always do, looking at the neighborhood, and a local grade school next door was, having, um, was beginning to do a Stop the Violence march. And so after they packed up their bags, loaded up the truck, packed up the furniture, cleaned the house down, ate lunch, and were sitting outside, thinking and reflecting on their time over the last seven weeks on the west side of Chicago, their last experience was to march with that community around the neighborhood and chant and pray. It is not okay for people on our street to get shot. It is not okay that we live in a cycle of poverty that doesn't give other opportunities for some of these kids. It is not okay. And we see your power and we see your influence, and we see your presence, but we want you to know that God is here. And so they marched with the community as their last thing to do because they saw a church across churches, across denominations that was willing to come together and say, God is here. Last night, as I actually was finishing writing this and cutting pieces out, um, I, I began to hear a, a dispute outside my window. And um, what I thought sounded like gunshots, I'm pretty sure they were. Um, and I got scared, actually, and I kind of like dropped under my desk because I was afraid things would come through the window. And then the second time I heard it, I ran to the bedroom to make sure Carl was okay because I heard it from the back of the house. Um, and, you know, some of us didn't know what we were getting into when we moved to Logan Square or Bronzeville or wherever we live in the city. Um, we thought, cool, let's be a part of this church. And all of a sudden, crime goes up and, you know, nine people in one weekend, 14 people in one weekend, two people on our block, and last, yesterday early afternoon, a drive-by on Humboldt and Armitage. And then right outside your window. But what message do we communicate if we move out into safer places while our city is going down? What message do we communicate? What message do we embody to the world around us if when things get unsafe, we leave and then come back in and help them march with their Stop the Crime? What happens when crime goes up and we say to ourselves, well, we don't want that to affect us, so let's just move out of here into a safer part of the community and then we'll just go and advocate for them? What do you think the people of your neighborhood and on our streets hear and see when they have seen churches do that over and over and over and over again in the city of Chicago. Does that say God is here? Does that show God is here? Imagine what a church would look like. Imagine a church like the Church of Ephesus with all of the powers and all the influence and all the diversity and all the mess and all the worship. If A church like that stayed and embraced the gospel message that we are one people and embodied the gospel message that revealed the glory of God to the people around them, that when they stood there and when they worshiped there and when they worked there and when they lived there and when they raised their children there, people would see that God is here. God has not left. 
God is right here. Do you see us? What powers in Chicago need to see that God is here? Because in an important, influential, diverse city, God revealed his glory through the church at Ephesus so much so that people were threatened. They embraced and embodied the message and had a significant impact in the city. So my question to us is really, what message are we proclaiming? What message are we embodying? What message are we communicating to the world around us as we live out our faith in the city? What can we learn from the people of Ephesus? Let me pray for us. God, we just confess that we're so afraid sometimes. We're so afraid that we crawl under our desks while we're preaching a message of courage or writing a message of courage. We hide under our desks. Help us to believe, God, that you are a great God, that you are the only God, that there is no God like you. Help us, God, to embrace the gospel message that we, across all of our differences and across all of our mess, are one. That we would show the power of the resurrected Christ through our community. And oh God, have mercy on us. And give us courage, God, to embody the gospel wherever you send us as individuals, but God, as a church, that people would feel threatened by our presence here. That we would be able to stand up and say, we see your power, we see your money, we see your connections, and we see your favor with the mayor, but there is only one savior in Chicago. There is only one God in Chicago, and his name is Jesus God, we grieve over our city and over all the hurt and over all the loss that parents have experienced this summer, watching their children die on the streets. And God, we grieve for the people that have lost homes because they can't afford to pay rent anymore, God, and we grieve. that many times we haven't been there. But oh God, we pray that you would fill us up with your power, God. God, we just extend our hands as a church, God, and we say, have your way. As we stay here in Logan Square, as we plant in Bronzeville, we ask, God, that you would give us courage and faith and belief, God, that you are a God who reveals his glory through the church. We thank you, Jesus, that you are the only Savior. 
that you are the only rightful God. And we praise you, Jesus, for this story in the book of Ephesians, God, for the story about a church who made an impact. In your name we pray. Amen. As we head out this week, um, will you extend your hands and receive this benediction as the truth that comes from the word of God? The word of God says his intent was that now, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms. May God give you the strength, the courage, and the wisdom to know how to live that out this week. In Jesus' name, amen.